First John chapter 2, 15 through 27. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thank you, Julia, for uh, bring us our Bible reading. And um, if you can keep your Bibles open, uh, 1 John, that would be really helpful if you're looking at it on your phone as well. Um, we're continuing this series looking at 1 John. Next week, we've got a guest speaker, Ant Adams, who's um, the executive director of Radstock Ministries and their mission partners that we support. So we're going to take a pause in 1 John and be looking at um, 1 Corinthians 9 next week as Ant brings that message about mission, global mission to us. Um, Ali, if you're happy to just flick on the slide, I came across this picture on Unsplash as I was thinking about commands. I think it sets up something quite interesting in our instinctive nature. When you see something that says, do not touch, do not run, do not go, do not dive, there's something that compels us to think, really? Why don't I have a go? I'm sure this person didn't injure themselves as they uh, dived in here. But there's that imperative command that triggers something in us that just wants to question it. Can I push that boundary? Surely you're not that serious. And here in John's letter, uh, uh, his first letter to these Turkish Christians, he is telling us in binary ways what it means to live in God's light, what it means to walk in Jesus's love. And this section that we're reading in, in chapter 2, verses 15 onwards, it is a challenging place to be because it brings us into stark contrast with the world that we live in, 
with the communities, the people we rub shoulders with, with our beliefs, as they feel like they clash and collide. Um, again, I was just uh, struck by a comment in uh, that sometimes, you, you know, it's not best to read the comments in after a newspaper article. This one was on about the public role of the church again and, and some of the um, stuff that's out there at the moment. Um, and this one comment from a guy called Mark, I, I think sums up some of the, the thoughts and the, the worldview that people are carrying when it comes to looking at obedience, what it means to engage with religion and uh, particularly rules. He writes, what are Christian Christianity's rules. There's me thinking a Christian is free to live their lives as they wish, guided by Jesus' teachings as they choose without reference to anyone else. The Christian friends I know choose totally to ignore these medieval organisations. He, he specifically mentions earlier the Church of England, the Roman Catholic, he calls them mafias. Uh, the, the, these medieval organisations who maintain a stranglehold on all thought and action. And these Christian friends live fulfilling lives on their own terms and with clear faith and consciences. Well, it sounds so reasonable. And yet it makes so many jumps. We're just guided by Jesus. There's no authority. Uh, if my conscience says something different, well, really my conscience is the be-all and end-all. That's the ultimate that actually those out there are the ones who are trying to stranglehold my thoughts. Do not do this. It's a challenge. And I hope what we're going to look at in our passage today, again, is how do we wrestle with this in a way that can take Mark's criticism seriously, but also push back and challenge and show some of the, the false alleys he's walked down and others that might hold that. Surely it's got to be life-giving. It's just something that fits in around your lifestyle and helps you be fulfilled. Not something that might challenge and change you. Not something that might convict you of things that you are doing that are wrong before the Lord. And so just to set the tone, we looked at the verses before, uh, verses 12 to 14, which are really important in our prayer meeting midweek on Wednesday. And, and what John is doing in those verses that are like a song, an exhortation, a song in the verses before, it's a transition. It comes deliberately in this, this letter, this probably a sermon that he preached, which is now in letter form. And he calls the church to be inspired as children of God, to the mature in faith, the parents, the fathers, to those who are walking in the faith and, and figuring it out, maybe younger Christians, the, the, the young men and women of the church, to actually see their solid identity in Christ Jesus. Verses 12 to 14, children whose sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus, who know the Father from the beginning, who has overcome the evil one, who are strong because of the word of God living in us. That exhortation is the foundation for now reading what we're going to look at. Know your identity in Christ as we go into this challenge, as we go into the commands to live differently. So verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world because if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. This word, world, which in the Greek is cosmos, is, is a big word for John, comes up lots in his Gospels, 
comes up lots in this letter as well, 23 times in this short letter, 23 times. Once in the first half and 22 times in this second half. And the second half of the letter starts here, verse 15 through to um, chapter 5. So we're right to ask straight away, what is, what's wrong with the world? Uh, how do we understand that word? What, what does John mean here? And it's helpful to know that the word cosmos, world, is understood in different ways throughout the Bible and particularly in the New Testament. On one level, it stands for the physical world, the natural world, planet Earth. So in Psalm 40, uh, 24 verse 1, we read, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That, that's the term it's used in John 1.19, the planet, the planet we dwell on. God uh, sustains in creation. And its, its beauty reflects his creativity, it's, uh, it's his glory that we see. It is a home for humans, for all creatures. And Genesis 1 makes clear that it is a good gift to be stewarded and cared for. But then we can see it is corrupted, it's flawed. Our sin, our rebellion against God, has damaged creation. It's infected every part of our lives. But after all, the most well-known verse in the Bible comes from John's Gospel as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. And in this verse then, in this, this meaning, the world is the object of God's saving plan. Sending his son as a saviour to redeem lost sinners for his new creation. And yet this old creation is corrupt. And because of that, it's easy to see the captivity of the world to the destructive influence of the one who has set themselves up against God, Satan, the devil. During the final week before his crucifixion, Jesus explains that the world, in a spiritual sense, is under the limited control of his enemy, the devil. Jesus put it this way, now is the time for judgment on this world, the world in all its rebellion against God. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, in John 12. So Jesus has in view there the world in its rebellion, and the world that is under a limited control of his enemy, Satan, the prince of the world, who doesn't have the final say. He isn't victorious. And later in the letter, here in 1 John, he reiterates that view of the world blighted by this satanic influence when he says in chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now that isn't to say that God, God's hands are tied and he can't do anything and, and it's all out of control. But this reality is captured in the way the New Testament sees the cosmos as an organised system of human civilization, of human activity that is fundamentally against God. This is a world of darkness, a world of lies, of hatred, of contempt for God. It's a broken world, it's a broken society. And we see that, don't we, on a daily basis, in loads of small things and major things. Crushing fuel poverty whilst energy companies make record profits. We see that imbalance. What's going on there? Where women living in London are less likely to approach a male metropolitan police officer for help. 
where the Children's Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, this week in a report that she released for England, highlighting a quarter of 16 to 21-year-olds who first saw pornography on the internet while at primary school. This is a secular report. It's something people are calling out. We see the darkness. By the age of 13, 50% had been exposed to it. And as the Apostle John makes clear, this world is doomed. It is passing away, verse 17. These are somber words, isn't it? It's no wonder that Christians over the centuries have wrestled with the question, so how do we relate properly to the world we live in? What does it mean for us to be here? And throughout history, right up till today, the church has either cut herself off and withdrawn, almost wearing its disgust and loathing at, at the world as a badge of honour. I can clearly remember just a small experience of this. When I was on mission in Colombia um, after university, many of the Christians there would have nothing to do with salsa dancing or listening to secular music. And when you understood the context, you could understand some of how they explained it as well, particularly with the salsa dancing and stuff, how sexually driven it was and how it was almost like there's no holes barred in their experience of it. And as coming as Christians, it's like, I can have nothing to do with it. And yet to us, you know, Western sort of late teenagers going, students thinking, how do you deal with that? Uh, what does that look like? And, and my friend, who is a worship leader, took their call about secular music really seriously. He came back home, got rid of all his secular music. Like, I'm not going to listen to anything more. And it, we it sort of like this head, I can't, it was like, ah, trying to sort out, how do we then take this back and live in the UK and what does that look like? Are we just supposed to be cut off here? And it is interesting that it took, it took Jim some time to process all that uh, and, and realise, okay, it, maybe there is, there's more nuance here, but there's a, a, a need to be distinctive and discerning, but there's also common grace, there's much to celebrate but it's hard. And at other times, you can see that we become so entangled. And probably at our cultural moment, that is where we are more so. So entangled, so enamored with the world, so in need to be relevant and in step with culture. Rather than perhaps thinking, there are some things to call out. There are some things to be critical of. But how we do that is distinctive. How we do that is loving and compassionate. So enamoured with the world that it is so different. You cannot see a difference between God's community, the church, and secular society. Kevin DeYoung, the pastor, American pastor, who's uh, preached through 1 John um, a few years ago, and I found his sermon so helpful. He, he put it like this, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look weird and strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness looks weird and strange. That doesn't mean you can be weird and strange and then just call it righteousness. But there's a, there's a principle there to figure out, isn't there? 
Which is why verse 16 in the text is such a powerful warning to us. For everything in the world, the lust, that is desire, it's the same word used for desire, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. And the problem is our personal attitude towards the things of the world. That's where the heart battle is. What we feel, what we see, the possessions and achievements we accumulate. That word, pride of life, that little phrase, it pops up in John chapter 3, verse 17. And when you look at it, what John's referring to there is material possessions. The things you need to sustain life. The stuff we want, that we can say, I've made it. You see, the world is so attractive to our eyes. It's so seductive to our hearts. We love these things too much. We're easily wooed. It would not surprise me if John Bunyan, the Puritan pastor who spent 12 years in prison for his preaching, and it wasn't bad preaching, it just wasn't the... <laughs> allowed at the time by the authorities. He wasn't put in prison because he was such a bad preacher, but because he was so faithful. Um, he wrote Pil Pilgrim's Progress back in 1678. And I'm sure he must have had verse 16 in mind as he wrote this description of Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is described by a character called Evangelist. And I'll just read you some of this. It's in slightly older English, so I do apologize for that. But I think you'll get the thrust of it. And I think what's interesting is you hear what Bunyan does. And this was quite a Puritan trait. They wouldn't just camp out on one word. They'd give you about 50 <laughs> to describe it, so that it really got in. And he talks about Vanity Fair. A fair kept in a town all year long. And it beareth the name Vanity Fair. This city lay through, um, the way of Pilgrim's journey to the eternal city lay through the town of Vanity. They contrived here to set up a fair, that is, um, Satan with his, his hordes. They set up this fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all year long. Therefore, at this fair, all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honours, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, delights of all sorts, as whores, as boards, as wives, as husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. <laughs> it sort of came to the end, and, and whatnot, that would be our etc. The interesting thing is, you just go, well, that's pretty much everything, isn't it? And there's a yes to that. It's the attitude. And again, coming up a little bit more up to date, uh, the preacher Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is one that I highly recommend you to read. Um, Counterfeit Gods, when the empty promises of love, money and power let you down. It is a fantastic diagnosis on this. But he, he quotes uh, Mary Bell, a counsellor who works with executives. Maybe this is another way in which it resonates, that pride of life with us today. Mary says, achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. 
The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually, in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow the deal doesn't take you to the euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. And as Keller puts, achievement can't really answer the big questions. Who am I? What am I really worth? How do I face death? It gives the initial illusion of an answer. And can I say that what Mary Bell wrote there about um, high-flying executives is seen easily in the church. The same thing grips our hearts. The same thing applies here. And so these aspects of worldly love, these aspects of worldly love which we have to say no to, we're encouraged by John to see the motivation. Why? Why say no? What is the problem of such worldly love? And, and the first reason that's here in the text is that it's just totally incompatible with loving God the Father. The two can't mix like water and oil, no matter how hard you shake it. It will always be separate. And there's no deal to be had. It's not 80% loving the Lord and 20% love the world can I just have Fridays and Saturdays please Lord you can have the rest of the week no Jesus has to be all the love is total there's no way you can either love the world or the father and then secondly we're told love for the world ends in destruction it's futile it will not satisfy it does not last it's passing away Again, we get glimpses of this in real life, don't we? Just as Mary Bell, that counsellor, put it in her own words. Whether it's the tragedy of a talented music star, think on the big scale, who achieves fame and success and then takes her life. Or whether it's the Christian pastor who wrecks decades of ministry for a fleeting pleasure of sin, an adulterous relationship. So is there a right and healthy way to love the world? How do we engage? Well, verse 17b tells us by investing our love in God the Father, if you look down at that verse, investing our love in God the Father is where there's life forever. That's the basis for loving the world rightly. When we give ourselves to doing God's will, that shapes our desires. We sang it earlier. Look at him, and the treasures of the earth go slightly dim. They start to lose their magnetism. All that Satan can offer us is desires that will not be fulfilled. What Jesus offers us in his life-giving love, through his sacrifice for our sin, taking our guilt and judgment on the cross, is forever. And by giving every part of our lives to Jesus Christ, to saying, yes, your love is total, it's not an 80-20 thing. Actually, our hearts are changed by his grace to love the world a better way. Johnny Cash in his song, The Rambler, said, you're shining your light 
and you shine it and shine it you should but you're so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good uh, that song's from the 1977 and and he picks that he picks up a thought that we have oh you're just too godly you're no good to anyone you're always thinking about heaven and, and never down here on earth. But the Bible's view of a healthy Christian is someone who's deeply heavenly minded because that is the one that makes the most impact on this earth. Devoted Christians, whether that's John Newton, William Wilberforce from history, who have worked tirelessly to abolish the slave trade, whether it's Christians as missionaries like Amy Carmichael or the philanthropist George Muller or journalist Robert Rakes who rescued children in peril, who have founded orphanages, who have established schools. History is full of Christians who have positively impacted the world because they were so heavenly minded, so in love with Christ, so grasped by that love. And ironically, it's those who are earthly minded who we're told here suffer with short-sightedness, who accomplish not much. Those accomplishments will fade. They don't last for eternity. And so focusing on serving Christ will mean we do depend on the Spirit's wisdom each day to live distinctively. Not looking down on people, not with a superiority complex, but with compassion. Compassion on our neighbourhood, on our workplaces, on our friends, on our family. We will want to reach out to the lost as we once were so that they find this life forever, this gift in Christ. But there's also a dangerous denial going on here in verses 18 to 23. And this is something that, again, is a bit of an aspect of this worldliness that's taking place. And having looked at that internal threat of the world, John turns his attention to an external threat, a threat to the faith of the Christians, these false teachers in verse, trying to lead them astray, verse 26. So let's look at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. What he means in the last hour is, is not a literal 60 minutes till Jesus returns, but when Jesus referred to his hour, he was talking about the cross. So the last hour is his return. And we're living in that gap. We're living in the age of his, looking forward to his return, the last hour. And as you have heard, John continues, the ant, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, I've not watched Lucifer, the TV drama that you can see the picture of. But it's promo pictures. It, it moves away from that typical sort of demonic, deranged, bloodthirsty, antichrist sort of picture you might get from Hollywood to a far more refined, I think it's fair to say that Tom Ellis, the actor who's playing him, sort of shines a slightly different light on the character. Far more refined, far more intelligent. And in one sense, that portrayal fits better with the description here in verse 18. Because the antichrists... These people are normal looking. They're respectable. They're everyday people who tragically threw the biblical gospel in the bin. You see, John doesn't have in view Satan, the, he, he doesn't have in view Satan, the, this master deceiver and prince of the world who stands condemned. That is the Antichrist. He's focusing in on people who are now teaching a false gospel. 
These are people who doctrinally are liars, he says. They stand against Jesus himself, denying that Jesus is fully divine and has a fully human nature, denying he is the saviour sent to the Father in verses 22 to 23. Pastorally, they had been friends with the people in these churches. They'd heard John's teaching. They'd probably sung and prayed together, discussed the gospel, shared meals, but now they've moved on, enthralled with a new teaching. Their itching ears wanted something more powerful, not a suffering saviour. And they broke fellowship with the church community, with John, with the apostles' teaching. And ultimately, therefore, as John's made clear in chapter 1, if you do that, you're breaking fellowship with God. You're choosing to go your own way. That sounds very much like those comments that were genuinely written by that chap Mark in the paper, online. Guidance which fits with me, that leads to futility, to destruction. The other characteristic of these fake Christians is that they're attempting to draw believers away. Can you see that in verse 26? John feels the pastoral responsibility to make sure the church help each other, to hold fast to the truth that they heard from the beginning. The truth that is in them, that remains in them. So there's a positive reality there. Guys, this isn't you, because God's truth is in you, verse 24. So this passage clearly, clearly challenges our relativistic culture, where our beliefs and morality are neither right or wrong, good or bad, because if it's working for you, that's okay. You see, John does not see the gospel as a sort of complementary insight, as John Stott, the Bible commentator, put it. There can be no compromise. The salvation we need from sin is unique and exclusive. The only way to the Father is through his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Jesus is not one saviour among many. And endurance is the hallmark of those who are saved. Those who belong to the church will stay in fellowship with the gospel through the gospel churches. So again, as we've seen before, we need to keep each other keeping pursuing Christ. We're here to help each other pursue him, to stay with him. To love each other means following the gospel together, not taking our eyes off him who has given us life forever. But we needn't live in fear of false teachers. We shouldn't overinflate that or, or, or the spiritual battle that we're in, which is true and real and we need to be aware. This is the last hour. But we don't need to fear because God has given us all we need to stand firm. And this is where I want to finish which is where John leads us in verses 24 to 27. Sorry, Ali, if you could flick the slide on. Is that we are the real deal. Verse 20, but you, Christians, have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things... And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. 
Now, John is confident that the community of churches he writes to, that he knows as dear, dear children, are the real deal. They're authentic disciples because they know the truth, and it was not possible for them to know that truth without the anointing of the Holy Spirit in them. Again, as, as the commentator John Stott, he explains it this way, the word of God, which they heard through John's preaching, is one objective safeguard. They'd heard the true gospel while the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the subjective experience of that gospel. Both the apostolic teaching and the heavenly teacher are necessary for us to continue in the truth. Can you see the two working utterly together in step with one another? The word through the Spirit, the Spirit in you as you believe, when you first believed. Both are personal, both are a work on our hearts, which the Holy Spirit indwells in all believers when we first believe. And this fulfills what Jesus promised his disciples when he said in John 15, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will come to help you and will be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. John 15 verses 16 to 17 and then in John 15 26 hear the emphasis now the advocate the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you there's that all things again John's emphasizing it here in this letter the Christians now know all things because the apostles pass that on and the Holy Spirit is their teacher he is in them and why doesn't John just come out here and say, the Holy Spirit? Why didn't he just make it really clear? Because he does later on in the letter. Well, it's probably because he's highlighting this play on words um, between anointing and Christ, the anointed one. So he's making a link, which is more clear in the original language, to contrast the breakaway fake believers who have claimed to have a special anointing, a special knowledge, they've got a special experience. And he's saying, you Christians have all you need. You have the Holy Spirit. You are anointed. And not in a past tense. It's a continuous work of the Holy Spirit to be anointed, to be filled with him. You don't need anything more. Isn't that wonderful? What a privilege that all Christians can be taught by God and it is by his Holy Spirit in us who teaches us. So we don't need fresh disclosures of some secret truth or some key to success. What we need is the Holy Spirit bringing a deeper revelation of what we already have been given, a deeper application a quickening, a prompting in the everyday to see where Jesus is at work, to follow his will. So are we open, church, to this work of the Holy Spirit? Are we hungry for him? Are we desiring to be in deeper obedience with the teaching we've been given? To approach the scriptures with hunger, to learn, to encounter God on a daily basis, to expect the Holy Spirit to teach us, not just as private individuals, but as a community. And John doesn't deny the need for teaching believers or else he wouldn't have written this letter. What he's celebrating is the gift that all believers can learn from the Father 
as they read his word, as they pray through their experiences, as they meditate on how he has worked in this world. They can trust and they can grow. They can follow the example of the Berean Christians in Acts who took the scriptures and tested what Paul said and saw it was true and accepted. Are you asking God the Father through his Holy Spirit for a greater willingness to be teachable, to be a better student, to be dependent on his prompting? We need the Spirit's illumination. We need his insight, his prophetic power to see how this word applies to us where we are, to depend on each other prayerfully, to get that pointing, to get that instruction. And why? So that we don't stray away. So that we enjoy walking in his light for a lifetime ahead, into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, for an enriching, empowering work of your Spirit on a daily basis, Lord. That we would be disciples who take your word seriously, who discern how to show practically, day by day, what it means to love you and to show that love in this world. This world that Jesus came to save lost sinners, to bring into his kingdom, the new creation. Father, would you strengthen us as a church to walk that way, to walk in your truth, not to seek after new things, new teachings, new uh, ways of being saved and finding fulfillment. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, keep us in yourself, remaining in you, enjoying you, using the gifts you've given us through your spirit to be a blessing to others as we pursue Christ our Saviour. Amen.